you, you know the little rhyme? April showers bring May flowers? Seems a little cruel to ask you that this morning. As I look out and there are, um, it's white stuff and a couple inches of it. But most people, when they say April showers bring May flowers, they're looking forward to those beautiful May flowers. But not me. I actually look forward to the showers, not snow showers, but thunderstorms, rain showers. My favorite place during these rain showers is to be sitting on my front porch, feeling the air become heavier, right, when, when, when it's about to, be, about to rain, that moisture in the air, you can almost taste it. And then you see the clouds roll in, those dark clouds just darkening the sky. And I love also how right before a thunderstorm, the world seems to get kind of quiet, right? Everything gets hushed. Animals have already scurried, scurried away. They're in their nests, their holes. And, and people are trying to control their umbrellas. They're trying to seek shelter, cars, stores, homes, whatever. But there's a hush. There's a quiet. And then all of a sudden, with a clap of thunder, the silence breaks open. And the rain falls, and you hear it beating the sidewalks and the, the tops of homes. And, and you're just overwhelmed by this feeling of being something small, caught up in something much, much larger than yourself. I love that. And this is where we find ourselves when we come to Psalm 29 this morning, because at the heart of this psalm is a thunderstorm. At the heart of this psalm is a sense of awe, and at the heart of this psalm is a sense of feeling, of being something small, caught up in something much, much larger. Now, we spent a lot of time in Psalms of Lament, and we're shifting gears. This is a psalm of praise, and, and Psalms of praise have their own kind of inner logic and structure that differ from Psalms of Lament. And here in Psalm 29, we actually see the, the basic kind of building blocks of a psalm of praise. Now, all psalms of praise kind of play with these building blocks, play with these structures, but there's, there's kind of some major pieces that Psalm 29 highlights for us. Three of them, to be exact. There's a call to praise, which you see in verses 1 and 2, right? Ascribe to the Lord greatness. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. The, the psalmist is basically instructing us, the heavenly beings actually in the psalm, and us as readers, to worship the Lord. Praise his name. Ascribe to him glory and strength. So there's the call to praise. And then there's the praise itself, which we see in verses 3 through 9. And here we're told why we're praising God, what we're praising God for. And here we're praising God for his strength, for his power. The God of glory thunders. The voice of the Lord is powerful. And then the third piece, which comes just in verse 11, which is prayer. You might be saying, but it doesn't look like a prayer. The NAV that we have translates it as a statement. The Lord blesses his people. The Lord gives strength to his people. But it can also be, can also be translated as a may. May the Lord bless his people. May the Lord give strength to his people. And, and you can see how this prayer or this promise, how it flows from the praise that comes before it. Because the Lord is powerful and mighty, may he bless his people with strength. May he give them peace. And so with this basic structure, these basic building blocks, the psalmist, wanting to craft a hymn of praise, wants to help us understand the power and the glory of God. And as he's got these basic building blocks, 
casting around for what can possibly grasp our imagination in terms of the power, the might, the glory of God, and the psalmist settles on a thunderstorm. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars, breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert, twisting the oaks and stripping the forest bare. I mean, not only is the, glo the glory, the power, and the strength of the Lord a thunderstorm, the glory, the power, and the strength of the Lord is also a violent thunderstorm. The psalmist is not imagining my favored April showers bring May flowers kind of rainstorms. The psalmist wants to paint a picture in our imaginations of the kind of storm that can wreck homes and tear up trees and smash anything in its path. All of a sudden, this goes from not just about the feeling of being small in the face of something much, much larger. This is all of a sudden about standing with fear and trembling before a force that could destroy us. But maybe it's hard for us to feel that immediate impact of that description of God's power and might as a thunderstorm. Maybe it doesn't quite grasp us in the way that it had grasped the psalmist when he wrote Psalm 29. I mean, we have strong homes. We have good infrastructure. And the worst that might happen in a really bad thunderstorm is, you know, some tree limbs come down, we lose power. But then we get to camp out in the living room with candles and flashlights, which is actually a lot of fun. But in the world of Psalm 29, the thunderstorm was something to be feared. Thunder, as one commentator noted for the psalmist, for, for those he was writing to and speaking to, that would have been the loudest sound they had ever experienced. Thunder, the clap of thunder. Nothing much greater could be imagined at the time that the psalm was written. Nothing more could be imagined than the sheer force and sound and magnitude of a rumbling, roaring thunderclap across the sky. And Psalm 29 is not the only place where thunderstorms and God are, are connected. You maybe you're probably already there before I'm even getting there. Because throughout the Old Testament, right, we have these stories upon stories of cloud, lightning, thunder, God. Just think back to Mount Sinai. Think back to Moses and the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And here's how Exodus describes it. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning, with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. The whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder. And then Moses spoke. And then the voice of God answered back. Cloud, lightning, thunder, voice of God, people trembling, mountains trembling. The very mountain trembled before the presence of God, the voice of God. Annie Dillard famously quipped, and we've probably all heard this, a very, very, very famous quip. Annie Dillard famously quipped that those of us who attend Sunday morning worship service like this, that we should be issued 
crash helmets and life preservers by the ushers on our way in these doors. Because she asks the question, does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power that we so blithely invoke when we gather to worship? Do we have the foggiest idea of the power we invoke? Which is another way of saying we sing our songs, we pray our prayers, we stand up and sit down blissfully and sometimes willfully unaware of the power of the one we worship. Crash helmets indeed. For we worship the one who comes with thunder and lightning, making mountains tremble, twisting strong oaks out of the ground and breaking them apart, and stripping forests bare. Do we have the foggiest idea of the one we worship? And if, even if we do have the foggiest idea, how, how in the world do we approach this God? How do we wrap our heads and our faith around this majestic, powerful, strong, and glorious one? This cosmic king enthroned over all. We are such small creatures caught up in something so much larger than ourselves. A thunderstorm, a violent one. Psalm 29. Let's set that here for a second. We're going to turn from a thunderstorm and we're going to turn over here to a quiet shore. On a quiet morning, nothing particularly spectacular about the seashore in this particular morning. Here in John 21, as we kind of just jumped into this gospel narrative, Easter has come and gone. Just like, for the, just like for us last week, for the disciples, Easter is already in the past. The cross of Good Friday, the empty tomb of Easter, that's already in the past few weeks for them. And Jesus actually, by the time we get to this one, he's already appeared to them twice. So it's not like it's new. This is the third time. And our story picks up where we jumped into John 21, verse 1. Our story picks up with a few of the disciples going fishing. And I actually, I love the abruptness, even the text, of Peter just kind of standing up and going, well, I'm going to go fishing. Then everyone else kind of looks around and says, not a bad idea. We'll join you. We'll go too. So when we come into the story in John 21, we actually just have a bunch of guys going out on a fishing trip. That's the momentousness (laughs) of where we enter in the story. And they catch nothing. Nothing. Whole night out, nothing. No fish, no success. And as they're getting ready to head in that morning with an empty net, some guy hollers at them from the seashore. Hey, friends, didn't you catch anything? And by asking it that way, the man's kind of rubbing it in that they didn't catch anything. It kind of expects a no answer. And they holler back, no, we didn't. You can imagine that they were actually probably a little annoyed (laughs) 
at this guy asking them if they had to catch a fish from the shore, right? Because John lets us in on the secret. John lets us in and saying, it's Jesus. But he lets us know the disciples hadn't clued in yet. They didn't know. This was just a man hollering from the seashore at them, rubbing it in, that on their fishing trip they caught nothing. And then oddly enough, the stranger shouts back. Try the other side of the boat. Just give it a try. And even more oddly, the disciples do just that. They haul that heavy net from one side of the boat to the other, they toss it in, and the empty net comes back full of fish. Big ones. The text even just makes sure big ones. Not just fish, but big fish. Do you know fishermen? And in that moment, that miracle, one of the disciples finally recognizes Jesus. No longer a stranger with some really good fishing advice, but their Lord. And this disciple taps Jesus on the shoulder, or taps Peter on the shoulder, and says, it's the Lord. It's it's the Lord. And, And Peter gets dressed to jump in the water because he's so excited. And then he swims to Jesus, even though, again, John kind of sticking it to Peter a little bit, says, we weren't that far from the shore. But that's Peter, and more on him next week with Pastor John. When the disciples get to the shore, we have a remarkable scene. They find Jesus over a campfire. A campfire with fish and bread already prepared. And there's a detail that can kind of get lost, because we just kind of glance right over it. Story says that none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They they knew it was the Lord. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Here in the Gospel of John, the disciples are awkward. Even Peter in his eagerness is really awkward, and and they're a little hesitant. John writes that they didn't dare ask him. Not that they didn't need to ask him because they knew who it was, but that they didn't dare. Which means part of them actually wanted to ask the question, right? Not that they didn't need to, but they didn't dare ask that question. Who are you? They just couldn't bring themselves to ask it. They were a little too scared. A New Testament theologian makes the observation that in no gospel account, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, anywhere does anyone, even the closest disciples to Jesus, kind of casually say, slap him on the back and say, really good to have you back. Lovely to see you, buddy. There's no casualness about this, even in his most intimate friendships. It just doesn't happen that way. It's not like seeing an old friend or your pastor back from mat leave. And you have to wonder if it was because the disciples sensed what Psalm 29 is teaching us this morning, reminding us of this morning, 
the power and the strength and the majesty and the glory of the Lord. The disciples wanted to ask, who are you? But they didn't dare. They didn't doubt that it was Jesus. They recognized him. They traveled for three years from dusty town to dusty town on dusty road on dusty road with this man. They knew him. They had no doubt that this was Jesus. But you gotta wonder if it was finally sinking into their bones just who it was that was in front of them. The risen one. The son of God. The one to whom the heavenly beings shout glory. The one of whom John writes earlier in this very gospel at the very beginning in chapter one, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and the only son. And in their hesitation to ask, who are you? Not daring to ask that question, Sitting on that seashore, the disciples shared the feeling of being so very small, caught up in something so very large. And what does Jesus do? What does he do? Does he chide them? You should know better. You should know me. Or does he keep his distance and say, this is who I am, kneel down in front of me? Jesus doesn't take either of those two. Completely justified in either one, I think. What does Jesus do? He looks at his bewildered disciples, feeling small and vulnerable and overwhelmed and a little scared, and he says, come and have breakfast. Come and have breakfast with me. What is more normal than that? aside from having breakfast with the word made flesh. But having breakfast, it's every day, it's ordinary. It's what we do with friends and family. Come and have breakfast with me. So what Jesus says and does for these bewildered disciples feeling small is it's a gesture and act of intimacy, belonging, friendship. And not only that, but of caretaking and providing. Jesus makes the meal. He doesn't keep distance from himself and his disciples. He draws them close. He makes them a meal, and he eats with them. Because this is who our God is. The powerful, the strong, the majestic, the thunderous king who cares for his people, who sustains them, protects them, and loves them, who meets them on the seashore after a long night of disappointment and invites them to breakfast. Back to Psalm 29. Psalm 29 ends with that prayer, that promise. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. The Lord over all things, 
enthroned king over all things forever, whose voice breaks cedars and twists the oaks, gives strength to his people and gives them peace. The truth of this is what we just witnessed in the baptism of Calvin Dean. The prayer and the promise that in Jesus Christ, in his life, death, and resurrection, this God of glory claims us as his. His covenant people. His beloved. Not because we can muster the strength or the ability to wrap our minds and our faith around this thunderous, glorious God, but because he has wrapped his arms around us first. Calvin, the disciples, us, we are all such small creatures caught up in something much, much larger than ourselves. But it's not a cause for fear, but of trust. Trust in the one who is so much greater than ourselves. Trust in the one who in Jesus, in the incarnation, knows how small we are, knows how vulnerable we are, us humans, us tiny ones. Trust in the Lord who sits enthroned as king over all, and who says to us, through these beautiful words of the prophet Isaiah, this is the voice of the Lord for us this morning. This is what the Lord says, he who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you won't be burned. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And since you are precious and honored in my sight, because I love you. The voice of God, cloud, lightning, thunder, trembling, claiming us as his. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Our God of glory, We come before you very small. Some of us feeling how small we are, how vulnerable. We come before you trusting you, trusting your claim on us, trusting who we are in your son, Jesus Christ, that we are yours, that we are loved, that we are forgiven. We give you thanks for your word, for your sacraments that 
show us these promises that teach us who we are and who you are. Just the gift that you've given us in your son, in the waters of baptism, and as your covenant people. We pray all of this with gratitude and fear and trust in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.